And so, you know, <clears throat> I treat people who have post-traumatic disorder or symptoms of post-traumatic disorder. And so let's say they got post-traumatic stress disorder because, again, because a relationship collapsed on them suddenly, which is quite common. You know, they get betrayed or someone leaves them suddenly and then they don't know what to do because, especially if they're conscientious, because then they just tear themselves into pieces trying to figure out what they did wrong to bring about that event. And the reason they're doing that is because they want to retool their perceptions and their actions so that the probability that they'll have the same experience again is minimized. Indeed. And their mind won't leave them alone till they do it. And no wonder, right? Because if you fall into a big pit and you get really hurt, the first thing you should figure out is how to not fall into big pits anymore. And your mind is set up exactly for that. And so what you do with someone who's having problems like that, so maybe they're waking up at the middle of the night obsessing about what went wrong, is you walk them through it. You do a situational analysis first, because one of the oversimplifications that people make, and this is especially true for conscientious people, is if something bad happened to me, I must have done something to deserve it. Indeed. And uh, truth be told, if you choose the wrong person, there's nothing you can do to make it work. If she has an encounter of 50 plus and she was hiding it, it doesn't matter how perfect you were. The, the, the thing was broken. You can't fix it. You needed to prevent the problem from the beginning. Now, that's actually a pretty functional idea because it suggests that there are things about your behavior that you could change that would make the future better. Indeed. But the problem is, is that, say, if it's the collapse of a relationship and you've been with that person for eight years or, or longer, well, you did so many things with them that the idea that you did something wrong pretty much extends to every single thing you ever did with them. And that's, how are you going to fix that? And so that's part of the trauma, actually. The, the, the trauma is... 80 million snakes, all at the same time. It's like, well, forget it. Right. The truth is you can't deal with every individual situation. You have to deal with the thing that might have caused the initial situation. So a lot of men, they don't understand female nature, right? And so because they don't understand it, um, a lot of the things that they do don't go well in the long term with female nature. So like guys will let themselves get fat, you know, they'll... Uh, uh, just be a kiss-ass and do whatever the girl says. They'll never argue. They'll never fight. They'll never, they'll never, um, you know, um, what's it called? Stand up uh, and support their own decisions. They just roll over and do whatever the girl wants. And uh, that just kills any relationship, right? Uh, not understanding that women don't want a nice guy. They don't want an agreeable guy. They want a winner, right? And you can disagree with her and still be a winner. You don't have time to go through all that material. And so partly what you do is with people, and this is what you should do with yourself too, is you do a situational analysis. It's like, don't be assuming necessarily that the thing that happened to you only happened to you because of what you did or didn't do. There's all sorts of factors at play. So true. Hello and welcome to the Helios blog. My name is Helios, here for another reaction video. If you're new to the channel, like in the content, hit that sub, hit all for notifications. If you'd like to support me, I do have a Patreon with exclusive content. Posting weekly content, patreon.com slash the Helios blog. Just go there and subscribe, patreon.com slash the Helios blog. You can also drop me a donation like Adrian R and Tom M. Shout out to them. Uh, link is in the description, guys. Okay, let's continue.
one of the things that sometimes I do with clients is if they were in a relationship and I can get some reasonable personality information about both of them, I can point out where they were temperamentally incompatible. You know, like if you're a highly conscientious person and your partner is very, very low in conscientiousness, it's like, well, good luck to you two. How the hell are you ever going to work that out? Because you want everything to be exactly where it's supposed to be and you're working all the time and your partner could care less whether things were where they're supposed to be and they're not going to work. And you can butt heads about that forever. The probability that you're going to shift it, you know, except to some minor degree is very, very low. And so sometimes you end up with someone with whom you get along very well on one temperamental dimension and you're an absolute catastrophe on the other four. And the probability that you're going to be able to mediate a huge temperamental difference is extremely low. You wouldn't expect yourself to mediate a huge intellectual difference. Right? You're going to make the other person smarter. Or maybe you smarter, depending on who you're with. It's like, no, probably not. A bit, maybe. So, you do a situational analysis. And so what you're trying to do is to extract out information from your past and your present that will enable you to conduct yourself properly into the future. And so that's another example of the pragmatic element of, of thought. Well then, within the brain itself, apart from the major subdivisions which, which, which we just described, there are minor subdivisions, and here's a bunch of them listed, the caudate nucleus, the cerebral cortex, the huge newest part of the brain that's about a square meter if you unfold it, it's all folded up and most of the processing occurs right on the surface that's, that's the idea anyways the thalamus, that's a place where a lot of the information in the brain appears to be integrated um, the cerebellum helps you with balance and the sequencing of complex motor activities the hippocampus, that's the one we talked about before one of the things that the hippocampus does, seems to do, is compare your model of the world as it's unfolding with the model that that you desire to be occurring and then keeps track of mismatches and if it detects a mismatch then it disinhibits other emotional and motivational centers and that's the beginning of your response to the unknown so one of them is the hypothalamus, I'm going to concentrate on it for a bit, it's a little tiny part of the brain that's pretty much at, at the top of the spinal cord, see it's really small compared to the rest of the brain now it turns out that if, imagine this is a cat brain for a minute and you take off the whole cat brain except for the hypothalamus, which, which people do, you take off the whole cortex, for example um, and then the cat's still alive if you do it carefully but it doesn't have much of a brain, and so you might think, well that cat would just do nothing, but it, cat's actually pretty functional if it's reduced just to its hypothalamus and that's because the hypothalamus is an incredibly important part of the brain and it provides, what I would say, constitute the major frames, the major psychological frames and so so like a, a decorticate cat can still eat and drink and regulate its body temperature and engage in defensive aggression and if it's right well the eating drinking etc that's all in the brain stem right it's female it can still mate a male can't because the male mating behavior is more complicated um, and as long as you keep it in a bounded environment it can function reasonably well it's hyper curious though which is very weird, because you wouldn't expect a cat with no brain to be curious about every, anything but a cat with no brain is curious about everything and that seems to be because part of the reason that you aren't curious about something anymore is because you've investigated it and you've built a representation of it that's functional 
And that functional representation then stands for the thing itself, and then you can ignore it. And so you learn to ignore things. There ah, okay. So it has no capacity to to build mental models. And so it's it's curious about stuff because there's the drive to build the mental model, but nowhere to store it. I, I understand the idea. They're, they're interesting to begin with, and then you learn to ignore them. And so one of the things that I think artists do, if they're great artists, is remind you that there's more to things that, than you see now that you've learned to ignore them. So you get a kind of a hallucinogenic painting of flowers like Van Gogh might produce, like his famous irises, which I think sold for like $220 million or something outrageous. It's like what Van Gogh is trying to show you is what those flowers looked like before you thought you could see them. Because now you flower and you walk by, you know. You don't see it at all because you're off to get a peanut butter sandwich or something. You don't have time to glory in the wonder of the world, you know. You've, you've got something practical to do. So That's about right. <laughs> That's very American, the, the statement that uh, Jordan just made there. <laughs> very American. All right, so we're going to zoom in on the hypothalamus here. And what you see, of course, when you zoom in on the hypothalamus is that it's not a thing. It's a whole bunch of things. And then it's one of those horrible whole bunches of things that are made out of even more bunches of things. And they're Indeed. made out of more bunches of things. And what's really interesting about going down the body from an analytic perspective is it doesn't seem to get less complex as you go farther down. You know, like It gets more complex. Uh, I should actually show you that. I haven't showed you that little video of uh, DNA fixing itself, eh? Oh, I better show you that. It's so cool. It's, it's insane, so you by the way. It. So, like, that's just so ridiculously mind-blowing that <clears throat> it's almost unbearable. I mean, to think about that as clockwork even is, is a pretty strange idea. Because while well, those little things walk over obstacles, it's like, how the hell does that happen? They're just molecules. So it's so cool, because when you go down, you'd think, simple but you know and you know he said at the beginning when they were taking that when the little machines were taking that DNA apart that he didn't show the error correcting you know they have these other little machines that go along and see if everything's okay and if it isn't they cut it out and put a right piece in it's like right and and that this this developed through evolution right it just developed through generations of iterative correction right is is absurd to, to think about okay uh let's read an article by Rodo Tomasi uh Man, uh, Jordan was so good in this video, I didn't have to do much commentary, to be honest. Uh, it was just um, basically a psychology lecture. Um, like, um, um, what do they call it? Um, a biopsychology lecture, right? Because you're, you're learning about the brain. It's effectively learning like biochemistry or whatever you call it. Okay, so here's plate theory by Rolo Tomasi. Uh, abundance and scarcity. Spin more plates. This is the main premise behind plate theory. Imagine for a moment a plate spinner. They're kind of like jugglers, but require real finesse and dexterity to maintain a spinning plate atop a long, thin stick. Just like the plate spinner, a man needs to have a lot of simultaneous prospects spinning together. Think of each plate as a separate woman you're pursuing. Some fall off and break, others you may wish to stop spinning altogether, and some may not spin as fast as you'd like, but the essence of plate theory is that a man is as confident and valuable as his options. This is the essence of the abundance mindset. Confidence is derived from options. This principle is key to solving so many of the problems that dog the heels of beta AFCs and recovering AFCs. In fact, I would say that this ideology should be the cornerstone to success for a man in many aspects of life.
not simply attracting and keeping women. A man with options has power, and from these options and this sense of power, a natural sense of confidence will manifest itself. A man without options becomes necessitous, and this leads to a lack of confidence and a scarcity mentality. Necessitous men are never free. As we progress through this section, keep in mind the cardinal rule of relationships. In any relationship, the person with the most power is the one who needs the other the least. When a man spins more plates, when he has irons in the fire, when he's pursuing multiple women simultaneously, when he has options equally worth exploring, a man will have a natural subconscious understanding that if one prospect does not expand, others very well may. This understanding has manifestations in a man's behavior that women key on covertly. There are mannerisms and attitudes that a man with options will subconsciously convey to prospective women that they interpret and give this man value as a commodity to be competed for with other females. On my blog and in the PUA community, men are taught to emulate this behavior since it is a key element in attraction and interest. Being cocky and funny is one such technique that trains a confidence behavior that more often than not essentially masks the deficit of options. In other words, cocky and funny is a natural behavior for men with options that must be compensated for for those that don't. This is why the natural alpha male seems to exude cocky and funny effortlessly, while those without the benefit of more plates um, struggle with simple things like eye contact or initiating approaches. This is also a fundamental principle in the I don't give a crap mentality that pervades community technique. It's much easier to actually not give a crap if you have other uh, prospects going simultaneously. Shotgun logic. One very important benefit that play theory provides for a man is that it greatly curbs the propensity for one-itis both in and out of a long-term relationship. Outside of a long-term relationship, most guys subscribe to what I call the sniper mentality. This is the AFC that applies all his time, effort, and resources to patiently wait for his target, waiting for that perfect opportunity to summon enough courage in the most precise of conditions to take his one shot at the girl who is the focus of his one-itis. This process could take anywhere from a few weeks to a few years in extreme cases, but all the while he voluntarily sacrifices most valuable of resources, potential opportunity. The man who subscribes to plate theory can more easily avoid the situation as he goes hunting for women with a shotgun, scattering as much influence across the, brightest, the broadest area possible. While the AFC fishes with a single line and a single hook, the plate theorist fishes with a trawling net, selecting the fish worth keeping and tossing back those who aren't. Inside a long-term relationship, play theory becomes more specified. The AFC placates and identifies with his partner because the balance has shifted to her advantage since he reinforces understanding that she's the only source of intimacy. I can't think of a better recipe for one-itis since he becomes progressively more dependent on her as his only source of intimacy. The man who maintains at the very least a covert perception of options, either professionally or on an inter-bedroom fund level, i.e. social proof that other women will compete, maintains this power balance. Most successful men have an innate understanding of this and this explains the uh, popular reservations for committing to marriage. In a long-term relationship, play theory becomes a subtle dance of perception and recognizing how your partner interprets understanding a particular man's option. But regardless, it reduces a guy's tendency to regress into one-itis in a long-term relationship from his own self-perception and the confidence it inspires. Natural selection. Spinning more plates allows you more opportunity to select, to select from the largest pool of prospective choices and date them or drop them as you see fit. This has two benefits. First, it serves as valuable, though non-committed experience for learning what a man requires for his own personal satisfaction. Experience teaches harsh, but it teaches best, and the breadth of experience serves a man well. Whose insight is more beneficial, the man who sailed the world over or the man who's never ventured beyond the lake?
Secondly, opportunity and options make a man the prize. Rock stars, professional athletes, and movie stars aren't irresistible to women because of the celebrity, but because they blatantly, and with the highest form of social proof, prove they have options that other women will jealously compete for, as well as the confidence that this unconscious knowledge naturally manifests. What play theory is not. Critics of play theory will often take a binary stance on their arguments with this idea, stating that they could never be with more than one woman at a time out of respect for her. Or should I just lie to her and see other girls on the side? To which I'd argue that these are feminized social conventions that attempt to thwart a man's options in order to establish and or maintain women as the prime selectors. If it can be conditioned into a boy or man to feel bad about seeing more than one woman at a time or non-exclusivity in his relations with women, it better serves the female as a chooser dynamic. To be sure, women are naturally the filters for their own intimacy, but it's essentially men who do the bedroom fun selection. The common trope that women do the bedroom fun selection is false. It's just that men's side of the bedroom fun selection equation is a threat to feminine primacy in uh, bedroom fun selection. The latent purpose of social conventions that sublimate men's bedroom fun choosing are designed to put selection of intimacy on a conditional basis that favors women. And as long as men internalize this, women will have a pre-constructed social high ground. The way to circumvent this dynamic is brutal honesty and commitment to truthful non-exclusivity with the plates you're spinning. If you keep your options above board and are honest with any one girl and yourself about your choice to be non-exclusive, you not only remove the teeth from this convention, but you also reinforce yourself as a man with options. Further, critics will offer, well, gee, if I did that with any woman, she'd push off and dump me, to which I'll refute. Not if you establish this honestly from the outset. Most guys who've swallowed the female power convention are too afraid or too preconditioned to even consider this as an option. Letting a woman know or covertly perceive that she won't be exclusive to her pushes your commodity level up and implies options and potential success she'll compete with uh, to be associated with. That said, plate theory is also most definitely not a license to be indiscriminate with women. Just because you can spin a plate doesn't necessarily mean you should. Some aren't worth spinning, and a man with options should have no reservations about letting one go for a better one or two. In fact, a man ought to be more discriminating in this regard since it affords him the best available from the largest selection. Okay. So, there's that. Okay, back to this Jordan thing. Yeah, things we don't understand. There's no shortage of them, that's for sure. Okay, so... What I'm doing in some sense is walking you through a psychophysiological representation of Piaget's developmental process, I would say. Um, So I wanted to zero in on the hypothalamus because it seems to me the thing that sets the most basic frames. And so we'll go ahead with that. So you see that it's made up of all these little parts. And so it's called the hypothalamus more for convenience than because it's a homogeneous set of structures, because it's not a homogeneous set of structures. And this is something to consider very carefully when you're thinking about the terminology that psychologists use or that you might use to describe your own behavior. Because, you know, you can roughly, there is a psychology of motivation and there's a psychology of emotion. And you might think, well, emotion and motivation are categorically different entities. But they're not. No, no, they're not. Actually, emotions are great motivators. In fact, even for people that purport to be logical um emotions are huge drivers of their behavior you don't want to feel bad you want to feel good these are the fundamental things right like and yes you can then rationalize and say well i know that i might be feeling bad right this second but in the long term i'll be better off even though i have to suffer doing this thing 
but still you're motivated by avoiding feeling bad and feeling more good. It's just over a longer term as opposed to short-term gratification, instant gratification. Although in 2023, instant gratification is at an all-time high and, uh, you know, children are being trained to be basically instant gratification-seeking machines. Um, This is why, you know, um, YouTube Shorts and TikTok and all that kind of stuff is so popular because it, well, not only does it encourage people to have a low attention span and gives them short dopamine hits, um, it also kind of trains people to even more like short dopamine hits and so on. It's it's going uh, in the totally wrong direction, if you ask me, but um, it, you know, it does make a person feel good, I guess, in the short term. In fact, there's no such thing as a uniform set of motivations, and there's no such thing as a uniform set of emotions, and the distinction between a motivation and an emotion is unclear, to say the least, and that's partly because the physiological substructures that subsume what we call motivations and what we call emotions, and it's not like there's a motivation center that's that's homogenous. The closest is the hypothalamus, but it's made of structures that are qualitatively different. And then the emotions because I I have to use that descriptive terminology because we have to communicate it about it somehow. There's all sorts of different structures in the brain that contribute to emotional expression, and they're not even in the same place, much less less composed of identical structure or function. So, you know, we have these shorthands that we use to divide up the world, but they're, they're awkward and untenable as the level of resolution increases. But anyways, I'm still going to go with motivation and emotion because... It's a useful simplification, but you can... Okay, so what what is he saying? He's saying the different parts of the brain... Um, the different parts of the brain... Uh, that There are different pieces that cause different emotions, right? And these different pieces that cause different emotions, uh, they're not even connected to each other. So you can't say that the emotions are one thing. They're actually multiple things. And uh, even like motivation, right? The thing that makes you want to do stuff is the is made up of different pieces and all of these different pieces kind of behave in different ways so you can't say that even motivation is one thing i i understand what he's getting at okay you can see with the hypothalamus that there's all these you know complicated little subsystems in there and then i showed you that video to show you just how complicated the subsystems are all the way down to the really to the molecular level how those little machines manage what they do is completely beyond me you know to call it clockwork when those little things that walk can walk over obstacles it's like clockwork does one thing you know only click 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 that's all it does no exceptions this thing walks over obstacles to get where it's going it's like yeah and and it's very cool to think that it arose through evolution and natural selection it it didn't even arise with a with a mind, you know, like w- with um with a goal in mind, it, it had, um, you know, well, it, it, the, the goal was obviously survival and reproduction, but there was no goal other than that, which is so the DNA's goal was just to replicate, right? And these substructures, you know, these these um repair machinery and transport machinery and all that evolved to make the that better, right? But it just it just evolved through natural selection because as 
like the things that did better were more likely to reproduce, whereas the things that didn't do better were less likely to. So over a long period of time, you get these these fantastical structures appearing, right? But it, it doesn't appear in a second. It appeared over, you know, a time span that's so big you have trouble imagining it, right? Okay, on to the Reddit post. Uh, me, 31, and my wife, 32. So again, there's a red flag right in the title. Always, right? If the girl is older, it's already done, right? It's already a red flag. The girl should not be older than the guy. But anyway, I found text messages that I felt uncomfortable with. When I spoke to my wife about it, she said there's nothing to talk about. She wants to call it quits. Two days ago, my wife was out at work. I was home with the kids. When I put the kids to bed, I started cleaning the house. I saw her iPad was left on the counter and I had, to, uh, uh, and I had the, uh, the ague to look at it. Okay, he used the wrong word. So I opened it and went through the messages and noticed messages between her and her coworker. 80% of it was work-related. The other 20 was her calling him a work husband, calling him hubs, how she had to make time for his for the work husband by picking up hours alongside him, even if it was just two hours. These types of messages were very sporadic, but I do know she has him on Snapchat and is one of her best friends, quote-unquote. After I saw those messages, I reached out to my male friend group, who are saying this is all red flags, how if things were on the opposite with me doing that, how she'd be mad at me... That work, husband, wife, lead to them hooking up. I reached out to a female coworker who's older, 50s. I wanted her advice from her perspective as an older woman. She said I need to speak to her, let her know how those messages made me feel. The night I brought it up to my wife. She's upset that I went through her iPad, that I didn't give her the benefit of the doubt, that she's done with me if I cannot trust her. During the talk, I said to her, I went through the iPad and saw those messages, and um, I didn't think anything was going on, but felt uncomfortable. From then on, she became upset. Questions if I ever called a woman babe or anything like that. I told her no, which is why I was thrown back by those messages. Wouldn't talk about the subject anymore. She said she's done. I told my friends about the interaction. They're saying she's guilt-tripping you. That it's not my fault for bringing up my emotions, continuously saying that she'd be mad at me if things were reversed. I believe that what my wife said is true, that I should have trusted her. I believe nothing is going on. We were talking about having another kid, about making time for us, but now I feel I'm losing everything. I don't know what to do. Um... So it's disrespectful for her to do this, um, and she obviously doesn't respect you, which means she, she, you probably were never her top uh, most attractive man in her life. But I don't know if she's necessarily cheating, although she probably will in the future. Let's see what the comments say. What uh, 3K upvotes. If such a small thing triggers her to want to leave, it was a thought in her head already before. Relationships that succeed have both people involved doing their best to hold things together. She's making no effort in this situation. Yeah, what you said. She's either using this as an excuse to leave or she's trying nuclear brinksmanship to deflect. Best case, I think she's seeing the grass as greener. Middle case, she's having an emotional affair. Worst case, she's having a physical affair. My best case is the middle case. Uh, you can't fire me, I quit. That's what the response says to me in different words. Okay, so again, we're going to end the video there. Guys, if you're new to the channel, liking the content, hit that sub, hit all for notifications. If you'd like to support me, I do have a Patreon with exclusive content. Patreon.com slash the blog. Just go there and subscribe. Again, it's Patreon.com slash the blog. You could also drop me a donation like Adrian R or Tom M here. Shoutouts to them. Link is in the description. Thank you so much, guys, for taking the time out of your day to listen to my video to the end. I really do appreciate it. Take care of yourselves, and I will see you next time.